Hello, Mr. Douglas. Yeah. Ah, yes. Hello there, my empowered people. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to Hanging with Mr. Douglas. I am he, Mr. Douglas, <laughs> and you are here with me. And here we are, moving ever deeper into the weeds of what this wacky existence we call living might just entail. Now, tying into more current events, especially here in the U.S., where, as I am recording this, tomorrow, July 26th, there will be a hearing, 10 a.m. Eastern, from the U.S. Congress, on the UAP, UFO, situation. Now, I don't know about you, but I, in growing up in the time that I was growing up in, recall vividly how the mainstream world would treat one that would consider and want to discuss this kind of information. Uh, you were looked at as uh, a loser at best and crazy more often than not. I vividly remember the hearing that was presented to the public at large after the Phoenix Lights sighting and how the, I believe it was the mayor at the time of Phoenix, rolled out some dude in an alien mask and like shimmery jumpsuit. It was all treated as a big fat joke, basically. And those of us that wanted to take it seriously, myself included, uh, were severely and consistently let down by the establishment. And yet, fast forward to 2023, here we are today, having some very interesting discussions on mainstream outlets. To that point, however, and as we have discussed in previous episodes, thank you, Ingo Swan, for bringing it to the fore, power structures are not out to empower the individuals that keep the power structure a power structuring, right? That power structure is there to keep itself going. And so, to have what we are existing in now present themselves as taking this information seriously is very interesting to me and should be taken with uh, a massive chunk of salt. Take it with a chunk of salt lamp because something is going on. What it is, I don't know. But what I do know is that there's a massive track record of these power structures and authorities not being honest with those that they are claiming to govern or have power over. And so, to that point, today's episode of Hanging with Mr. Douglas is going to be discussing this situation in particular. And we're going to do it through the work of a gentleman named Michael Topper. Get ready, we're in the tall grass now. I first came across this guy, Michael Topper, listening to the Slavland podcast, uh, the episode entitled Red List 26, The Etheric Body with Tom Montauk. Uh, in this episode, Tom Montauk talks about uh, the people he's come across that he'd recommend reading and learning from when it comes to leveling up our psi power skill set. That podcast I shall link in the show notes. But after listening to that episode, I started the internet rabbit hole diving and digging onto the people Tom had recommended. And I came across a few PDFs of Michael Topper's work, and this guy has already blown me away. 
Michael Topper, who has gone by a bunch of different names as well. Um, he's, a, he's a person of massive intelligence and, and super deep depths of knowledge. Some of the names that he's uh, gone by, according to some of the information I found, uh, is uh, Marshall Telemachus, Mother Terezu or Terazu, Morris Tarantella or Morris Taranteya, among others. So after this guy, Michael Topper, puts together a whole bunch of material, right, most of which was published apparently by this guy Val Valerian uh, in a series of books entitled The Matrix Books, Michael Topper dropped off the map, just kind of disappeared. I have looked considerably uh, over the internet and through many clicking of links and trying to find through forum posts a way to reach out. I have yet to make any success. If anybody else is taking up this search, this exploration for contact information, let me know. I'd love to join because at least from my initial exposure to Michael Topper's information, he knows to a pretty significant degree, what's what and, and what very well is going on, as well as, uh, or at least very well what may be going on, because I, I don't know. Regardless, the information that I've been exposed to by him thus far, and again, it's only been a portion of what he's put together, has been hitting the Goldilocks zone of several aspects of my pursuit of empowerment and understanding and awareness expansion. Now, the summary that I'm about to give uh, is largely sourced from a website, which I will link again in the show notes, www.bibliotecapleiades.net, as where this information is coming from here when it comes to this summary. So, who is Michael Topper? Apparently, Michael Topper is an author of some of the most thick, deep, and rich esoteric literature on the fringes of the Internet. According to his own writings, he started his spiritual career together with his wife, who he references as AAA, by practicing a lot of meditation and other commonly well-known techniques in the beginning of the 70s. And at the end of the 70s, apparently his hard work reached a kind of culmination point. And after an intense meditation session, uh, it left him with a kind of permanent faculty of aura reading. And a quote from Matrix 4 by Val Valerian, quote, this faculty proved to be far more powerful than any other faculty about which they'd read, including the celebrated aura reading faculty of Ledbetter et al. Unquote. That aura faculty that he's referencing from Ledbetter is also referenced in Ingo Swan's psychic sexuality, with which Ingo Swan actually experienced himself. When we go through psychic sexuality, I will absolutely discuss that experience that he had. Interestingly, the study that Ingo uh, participated in, in which he activated that very faculty that is referenced here by Michael Topper, is also referenced in a book uh, uh, on Qigong, which I'm reading right now. So there's a lot of overlap happening right now in my life and a lot of the information that I'm coming across that is stacking in terms of potency. And I am here bringing it to you. So thank you. It's a pleasure to be able to do that. Pleasure to have you here with me in this pursuit of expansion of awareness and psi abilities and living as a more complete being during our human experience. Moving on. What followed with Michael Topper were more years of intense work where he was working now with these visible multidimensional energies. 
with more primary experimentation uh, in order to figure out how they work. Eventually, after some more years, he and his wife figured out quite a bit about how these energies work and how to align them. Uh, a theme, apparently, that is consistently reappearing over and over again, a theme that I've come across, at least in my readings of his work, is the axiom that humans' consciousness is artificially being limited due to its current low-level mind-body integration. And a higher mind-body integration can be reached by raising one's kundalini energy, which is locked at the base of the spine. Uh, I don't know if that's the only way, but that is the way that Michael Topper here is telling us. So, in 1988, Michael Topper started to produce books and audio tapes and a magazine, which is uh, what we're going to be referencing from most in this episode. The magazine is titled The New Thunderbird Chronicle and uh, continued under the name Thunderbird vs. the UFOs or T-Bird vs. the UFOs. Anyway, during that time, from 88 to 93 or, or about 94, he produced a staggering amount of information and he pumped it out. And the quality is simply breathtaking. So I haven't read this part of his work yet, but according to the website, in 93, Michael Topper and his wife stated they were under occult siege and that negative beings of higher dimensions uh, wanted to shut down Michael Topper's communication. And since then, nobody's really ever heard from him. The website's author states that he was able to track down a friend of theirs, but nobody knows what they're doing nowadays. Seems like they disappeared. However, uh, in the few productive years, you know, 88 to 93, 94, Topper poured out well over 700 pages of first-class, transdimensional information. And apparently, I'd love to find these uh, 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 90 or so audio tapes with all sorts of uncommon information. So, some of the information that Michael Topper talks about are chakras and higher-dimensional energies, uh, life currents, nature currents, kundalini, other energy currents, UFOs, the positive and negative realms, um, aliens beyond this world, the power elite, the logos and the anti-logos. He talks about channeling, and this is some of the stuff that I've started to read in his Thunderbirds versus the UFOs. And again, I will link uh, to all of the ability to access this information. He does a nice job in doing the best he can to say, hey, Definitely take this channeling information uh, at arm's length when uh, getting exposed to it because, and then he breaks down a kind of litmus test as to seeing why some of this information may be an actual uh, hindrance, if not a deception, and others might actually be straight up good news in order for elucidation for us in our experience now. Basically, there's some legit channeling information that's legit trying to help. And then there's a lot more channeling information that is nah, -uh. that's just not really worth exposing yourself to because the information has too much, no better way to say it, negativity uh, tied into the information. It, it, it will knot up your mentality when approaching information to the point where it's not going to help, it might even hurt. Anyway, he also talks about practical advice, which is really cool. I just started looking into this, uh, but talking about charger breathing, the banishing star pentagram, 
aligning chakras. It's pretty cool. We'll get into it. Moving on, he also talks about mind-brain behaviors, brainwave burglars, esoteric technology, the Pleiades. He talks about scalar-engineered mind control, earthquake control, technical wizardry, the global energy grid, sacred geometry, the phi ratio, enlightenment and ways to reach it, positive and negative style, consciousness, subconsciousness, and a whole bunch more. The guy lays it out. His writing is funny, actually. It's uh, very, very flowery. He uses a whole bunch of alliteration, but when you get into his rhythm, it ends up being fun and chuckle-inducing a lot of the time, when I'm reading it at least. Anyway, the reason for today's introduction is that while I was reading his collected works, uh, right now, uh, the T-Bird versus the Flying Saucers magazine periodical issues that he released, uh, I came across a fantastic and quite comprehensive overview of just about all the other information I've come across over the years in my scrounging around to kind of try to piece together the 5,000-piece puzzle set of the space alien, ultra-terrestrial, ancient history, UFO, UAP, etc. situation that is just now getting some kind of pseudo-legitimate play in the mainstream. In one of his issues, in the T-Bird versus the Flying Saucers that I'm reading, uh, which I will again leave a link to the PDF, uh, Michael Topper gives us the breakdown by taking us through it via a campfire conversation. It's a really smart way of getting this information out there. So it's a campfire conversation between the characters from the movie Easy Rider, played by Dennis Hopper, Henry Fonda, and Jack Nicholson. Reading through it the first time, right, my jaw just kept dropping lower and lower. He stitched together all this information in conversation form. And it's still dense. But to me, in my experience, this is by far the most palatable form and, again, the most comprehensive production I have come across when it comes to this information to date. So, I was inspired to turn it into an audio version. And that's what we have here for you today, my dear listeners, my dear Telestai. Take uh, every mind meal served up here with a grain of salt, for sure. I don't purport that this is the end-all be-all at all, but I will say it creates the most comprehensive tapestry of what multiple disparate and unrelated sources have stated in their works. I put this together basically as a way to say to people, hey, it's getting weirder than ever, and the only thing that's clear is the level of manipulation increasing from just about all angles when it comes to this kind of information. So, here is a way to get your mind around this information and get ahead of any kind of narrative spinning, not primarily for your individual benefit, for our individual benefit, but for some other power structure's agenda. Allow your mind to steep in this information and consider it. You know, use your discernment. This way, what might be flung at us through manipulated mainstream channel dissemination stations will not be wholly new, and we'll have much less of a chance to take us off our guard. So, whew, without further ado, enjoy the audio production written by Michael Topper, what I call The Situation. Here we go.
Even as the lovely meditative miles spooled off from the veritable ribbon of Toon Lane, one couldn't help but consider how far it all was from the spirit of Easy Rider, which it nonetheless evoked. Indeed, quote-unquote, what a long, strange trip it's been. One recalled the most famous of celluloid scenes from the 60s, in which Hopper and Fonda gleefully conspire to get Jack Nicholson's straight southern lawyer stone for the first time beneath a wooded American night sky. And Nicholson proceeds to take them on a trip as he loosens up and begins the celebrated soliloquy as to how those satellites are often saucers in disguise and how the space people have been monitoring this planet for ages. One remembered the dream-litted dubiety of Hopper's Billy and Fonda's progressive facial register of his trademark, Far Out. Suppose, in our collectively stoned condition, the scene doesn't stop there, but goes straight on, in an exponentially paranoic time ellipse, as Nicholson keeps puffing and proclaims, <coughs> Yes, and not only have the space beings been monitoring us, but they've actually made themselves known to our government and have made a secret pact with the military. At the highest levels, you know. He proceeds, yes, joints pass gingerly through the audience as attention becomes thoroughly sucked up into the enveloping immensity of the screen. Of course. The military's interested in the arrangement because of their highly advanced technology and the implicit threat their superior knowledge poses to the whole safety of the planet Earth and civilization as we know it. Fonda's lids lift in puffy pantomime of the proverbial far out. But what the space beings are interested in is interbreeding with Earth women in order to improve their genetic stock which has been severely damaged by nuclear holocausts on their own world. Hopper rolls his eyes moonward in appeal to the patron of lunatics, takes another hit, as Fonda, in sheer mesmeric fashion, moves around the campfire closer to the raptured Nicholson. And the secret government, you know, the military-industrial complex and its espionage agencies, and the Council on Foreign Relations, and the Illuminati, and the Jason Scholars, and the Club of Rome, and the Bilderbergers, and the Masons, and the Elks, and the Shriners. The secret government decides to the aliens' terms in the hopes of keeping their abduction activities to a limited basis that can be supervised. So we exchange the promise of a full list of the borrowed citizens used in their genetic experiments and returned undamaged for the guarantee of acquiring their advanced scientific knowledge so we can forge far ahead of the Russians and at the same time raise ourselves onto a par with the space beings, of course. Jack continues, staring slit-eyed into the fire. We figure these space beings aren't used to Earth deals. Our military figures that it slickered these rubbery-skinned rubes from Orion, and all the while it doesn't realize that it's they themselves that have been slickered. Well, I suppose these space dudes have fine print in their contract. 
What'd they do, have you for their attorney? Hopper jeers, bogarting the last of the joint that's lingered twelve eternities as an idle glow in the shadow between his fingers. That's correct, Jack forges on. The fine print, as you so sagely remark, implicitly stated that these space beings had just been given carte blanche because of a little-known clause of cosmic law, which was just not the Earth government's forte. And that law states that the sanctity, the internal self-contained development of a planetary culture or society cannot be violated except on invitation extended to an outside agency by the free will of that culture through its overt or implicit representatives. Come again? Fonda interjects after what seems to be an interminable suspension of time, every audible nuance in the crackle of the campfire meticulously subdividing into separate infinities of tone. You heard me correctly, my friend. It turns out that once the invitation is extended by making a pact or treaty, the space beings that are negatively polarized and therefore not honor-bound to observe the specific terms of any agreement are perfectly able to maraud and plunder according to the actual spirit or true character that originally sparked the agreement. Since the whole treaty was inspired in the first place by designs of military supremacy, control, and conquest, the space beings of negative orientation take that to be the real governing terms of their own activity. So the military comes to find out that they have violated the agreement, that they've only been submitting fractional lists of the actual number of unsuspecting citizens they've been abducting and subjecting to genetic experiments, medical examinations, brainwashing, and post-hypnotic suggestion amnesia, monitor implanting of a surgical type, and so forth. So, what exactly does the military and the secret power structure do when it finds out about this infraction? Fonda asks, spellbound with the tiny image of the bonfire dancing in each glazed pupil of his eyes. Well, naturally, it goes right ahead and uses as much of the alien technology as is doled out by the comparative eyedropper to abduct and brainwash and implant U.S. citizens as well. Good! <laughs> Hopper chortles. We'll retaliate the execution of U.S. hostages by taking American citizens hostage and executing them ourselves! That's sort of the logic, all right, Jack draws. You see, what the government started getting concerned about was the number that really seemed to be involved here, and that it wasn't only miscellaneous citizens they were finding with missing time, but military personnel, government officials, and people in key positions of power everywhere. Cut back and forth to successfully tight shots of Fonda's far-out expression. Well... The government begins to figure that the only thing it can do is either go to the American people through the mass media and confess the fact that it had closed a bad deal behind everyone's back and appeal to the enlightened concern of the general citizenry, or it can clam up, 
spare itself the embarrassment and the implicit revelation concerning the character of its routine behavior patterns, and develop its own preemptive strike capabilities using a combination of what it could extract from alien technology and the advanced work of its scientific minds. So... Fonda seems to pick each separate piece like glass from the cells of his brain. The government must have figured out that the extraterrestrials don't just want to borrow from our gene pool to splice a few codes into their allegedly fatigued systems? That's right. From all the evidence gathered through hypnotic regression, advanced spy equipment, and loose ends that the aliens didn't bother to clean up or deliberately left around, the government began to get the idea that masses of people were being abducted in their sleep or off the highways, rigged with monitoring devices and hypnotically programmed, and much of what they found out seemed to indicate that the information or behavioral codes implanted in this way were of the order of elaborate double lock time release imprints because of the complex way the aliens folded the information into the hypnotic recess of people's brains the programs themselves couldn't be retrieved but the surrounding recollections and circumstantial evidences suggested that highly sophisticated technological knowledge was often being stored away in the deep minds of ordinary citizens, and even subliminally retrained instructions on how to run certain kinds of alien UFO equipment and weaponry. Well, because of this, the government got the idea quick that the aliens were creating a silent ground-level army of dormant, robotically programmed units in the form of unsuspecting, ordinary people in all walks of life that could be called on simultaneously at the appropriate time. You mean, sort of like a zombie army? Night of the Living Dead stuff? Hopper interjects in asthmatic gasps while holding his breath. Yeah... Jack smiles with an exaggerated wag of his chin, obviously enjoying himself. Well, the government and military-industrial espionage bankocracy complex isn't going to play second fiddle to anybody's plans for world conquest, let alone aliens from some other system of space and time altogether. And besides, such nefarious activities also began to look very much as if they can work directly to the benefit of the power structure in order to consolidate its global hold even further, if played right. You mean because of all the incredibly advanced technology they may be able to get their hands on, and also because the threat of an alien from outer space takeover, if regulated and timed and released just right could create the kind of unprecedented situation that could totally disorient human psychology and cause everyone in their panic and bewilderment to submit willingly to the martial law order of a world totalitarianism. You mean the whole thing fits into the pattern of producing a one-world government? That's right. Jack grins an oriental grin with satisfied conclusiveness. Of course, because of all the unpredictable variables and the inherent 
uncertainty. He enunciates the syllables distinctly with stoned precision like the most grandiloquent of hippie pedagogues. What with the aliens being so inscrutable and producing so many contradictory signals, the power structure brainstorms a lot of contingency plans. They don't just develop one course of action, but a whole line of options. They get their think tanks working overtime. First of all, of course, they have to at least keep up with the aliens. So their own spy fraternities like the NSA and CIA double up on the monitoring operation. They not only supply the aliens jointly occupied underground facilities, such as in Arizona, Nevada, and New Mexico, where they can learn from their electromagnetic and biogenetic procedures while keeping things in an apparently controlled environment. But they subject the people used as guinea pigs there to a double operation. A covert duplication of the aliens' procedures where the government independently kidnaps the same and other people in order to use what they've learned of alien technology to implant and program them as well. To monitor their activities, experiment with radio-hypnotic intracerebral control, telepathic transmission of orders, long-distance disruption of behaviors through ELF, combinations of drug, hypnotic, and electromagnetic brainwashing, and so on. In fact, the government starts experimenting from the very beginning at super-secret facilities like Los Alamos, on forms of genetic breeding and exotic DNA intervention aimed at beating the aliens to the punch where it comes to forming an indigenous Earth-based super-race, or alternatively a biologically programmed and obedient cast of homemade androids, you know, disposable organic robots, to perform menial or dangerous tasks, suicidal missions, so forth. Also, of course, the secret government pursues a technology of cloning so as to be able to actually substitute hypnotically obedient robot drones for key government and communications personalities. Yeah, I know a lot of politicians and more than a few news anchors that answer to that description already, Hopper exclaims, peering cross-eyed through the rings of smoke he's puffed toward the pulsing fire. It seems that all this time the secret government has led official science at the popular level into safe lines of development, where the really advanced and revolutionary forms of the super science, that was already largely in the military's hands, would be screened from view and go unsuspected by the vast majority. Wait a minute, wait a minute! Hopper seems to explode like a pine log popping in the fire. How the hell does this all-powerful, cryptic goddamn government of yours manage to do all that, huh? Stoned indignation to the superlative degree. How do the authorities manage to keep scientists from discovering things in the natural course of practicing their science? How do they manage to manipulate and control something that has to function intrinsically through the spirit of free inquiry, man? I suppose you feel the Russian government has allowed its scientists free unbridled inquiry all these years? Well, hell no. I mean, that's different. 
Everyone knows they've been hamstrung in a lot of ways by the arbitrary imposition of communist doctrine, dialectical materialism, all that. Well, I suppose you're going to tell me that the free world governments have also imposed their version of restrictive doctrine all over the ivy and higher learning, the, the groves of capitalist academe. There it is. Jack pounces. You just said it. Investigation always goes where the money flows. That's the kind of doctrine that keeps things in line in the free world. Funding, my friend. What line of inquiry is deemed lucrative? What avenue of impartial academic pursuit does Congress and the regulatory valves of those steering committees designate as deserving of the grants, the big bucks subsidies? Do corporations and the utility companies really allow the unrestrained, impartially subsidized development of free energy resources, even though the principles and working models were proven by people like Tesla early in the century? Or do they doctor the existing evidence, abridge important texts, confiscate papers, hire popularizers to streamline seminal theories such as Clerk Maxwell's original equations, which possessed an important scalar component that just somehow doesn't show up in the sanitized standard produced by his interpreter, Oliver Heaviside. You don't have to get huffy, Hopper murmurs, the floating focus of his interest already dispersed as he folds over in calm containment before the banking fire. It's just stuff that should be self-evident, Jack says with satisfied disdain. You can even trace the changing position of the unofficial power structure as it pulls the strings behind the scenes. I'll bet you didn't know that there was a terrific public surge of anti-gravity research in the early 50s. All of it right out in the open. Newspapers and scientific magazines and all. It wasn't belittled back then. But you're probably too young to remember. I remember all those 50s sci-fi movies about flying saucers and weird beings from other worlds. Hopper snorts in bemused reminiscence. Exactly, Nicholson brightens. That was inspired by the same basic thing that was happening all over. It's not an accident that electrogravitics was such a hot pursuit. Right out in the public at the same time that there started up the big UFO flap, and all the films on flying saucers and space-age technology. It's all part and parcel of the same phenomenon. Yeah, boredom with the Eisenhower years. <laughs> Hopper laughs. Well, even that bland middle-class atmosphere was a way of keeping the lid on and maintaining the impression of order. While, in fact, the most revolutionary of all happenings was seething right under everyone's nose. All that gravity research was stimulated by the recent recovery of the crashed UFOs. The government was pushing without letting most of its scientists or any of the public know the truth. They needed to get caught up fast on the whole zone of exotic potential. 
You know, at the time, there was only so much they could derive from examining strange, partially damaged, or out-of-commission craft made of elements or alloys beyond the comprehension of the present Earth science altogether. The government obviously felt we had to develop our own terrestrial-based equivalent if we were going to survive exposure to the startling things that were found at those recovery sites. What things? Fonda slowly turns his head, obviously magnetized by the ominous undertone. Wait a minute, Hopper interrupts. If all that gravity research was so out in the open, what happened to it? You never hear of it now. And it doesn't get a hell of a lot of space in the journals of science history. It seems to me that if it was so public at one time, it must have gone the way of the Edsel. Not at all, Jack states matter-of-factly, brimming with a plum. In fact, all the research was quietly withdrawn toward the beginning of the 60s. The heavy gravity research of the 50s is in fact a perfect example of what I was saying about how the secret government manipulates and maneuvers the direction of research. Because once the pact was entered into directly with those aliens contacted after the kismet of the desert UFO crashes, we obtained sufficient knowledge to rule it advantageous to withdraw interest from the public level of scientific investigation and continue the research and experimentation entirely in secret. That's where the really big split took place between the advanced scientific and exotic technological research being sponsored by the secret government underground and the large fund projects involving cyclotron colliders and subnuclear physics keeping the public level science community happy and helping to perpetuate the corporate cash flow system at the same time. Those big, ponderous programs helped to produce collective amnesia about the anti-gravity experiments that were approachable from the level of electronics engineering, and that involved so much inopportune, free energy implication at just about every turn. Corporate America and the international financial empire breathed a sigh of relief when all that no longer required the concerted effort of every available scientist or the incalculable factor of the random gifted amateur they were always scouting for in those days. You know, the surprise element of undereducated naivete that just stumbles onto something that experts overlook just because of the gaps in formal comprehension. Let's get back to what you were saying about the crashed UFOs. Fonda succeeds in tugging the meandering circuit of his mind through the associative links of conversation, back to the theme that had generated the rippling undertone, the vibe of tacit menace. Well, that all has to do with how and why the military corporate power structure developed its strategy for handling the situation in the first place. It seems the secret government was a little dubious about these Space Brothers since they first crash-landed in Roswell, New Mexico and Four Corners in the years between 1947 and 1949, since they not only recovered alien bodies from the wreckage, but the spare parts of missing military personnel. What? Fonda's bloodshot eye slides to its very corner under a limp awning. 
where it peers obliquely at Nicholson. You mean these space beings were carving people up? And this was all known from the very beginning? It seems there was all manner of confusing specimens aboard the first crashed ships, and it was never really clear to the powers that be whether these wrecks and their contents were staged for maximum emotional impact. You know, in order to create deliberate confusion. There was all sorts of weird stuff on board those ships that were subsequently taken to Holloman and Edwards Air Force bases. There was allegedly an array of space-being fetuses hooked up to tubes and surgically altered to have more human features. And there were carcasses of dead crew that showed bizarre insides at autopsy, like a chlorophyll-based circulatory system, suggesting some nutritive process of do-it-yourself photosynthesis. Wait a minute, Hopper interjects. If this stuff was originally discovered before the government even made a formal face-to-face -face treaty with these aliens, he snorts in a private amusement. What happens to the idea about cosmic law and all that stuff, huh? Answer me that, Mr. Bible Belt Barrister. What about the idea that these negative beings have to obey some kind of quasi-spiritual rule about being invited first? before they can assume they've got the go-ahead to start cutting up. Got you there, huh, Mr. William Jennings Bryan? Not a bit, Captain. Jack grins his Cheshire grin. For it seems a power structure is so damnably compartmentalized with its nests of secret groups and agencies inside other secret groups and agencies that all along the left hand has not really known what the right hand has been doing. You mean, somebody in the government had already extended the invitation to them? Uh-huh, that is correct, my friend. On a limited basis, FDR had already made an agreement on the open seas before World War II with one of the negative alien subgroups for certain technological advantages and training that could be used during wartime. Of course, the aliens had already entered into an even more extensive agreement with the Nazis, but Roosevelt didn't necessarily know about this. Boggles the mind! Hopper's mind seems to drift off with the attenuated distraction of his voice. Disconnected segments, miscellaneous bits will occur to him in the course of the next day, no one edge fitting to any other. Of course, the space beings had always been beaming the electromagnetically enhanced thought waves toward Earth people and especially influential figures, so as to entice them subconsciously and lead them, without their knowing it of course, to the point of psychic readiness where they'd be willing to enter into some such pact once the beings revealed themselves and demonstrated some of their marvelous capabilities. I see. Well, this sort of thing has been going on for time immemorial. Jack settles into his most lawyer-like demeanor, about to expound the brief for the prosecution. Although the higher principles of cosmic law work on the idea of free will, and any being, positive or negative, who's going to exist in the higher dimensional conditions has to adhere to that law. The negative beings try to use it to their advantage. 
it's beginning to become well known that they trick the free will variable operating through souls connected to the screening devices of the lower dimensions so that those souls acting through distorted or deliberately engineered information of an imperfect, partial, or invented character are induced to take willed actions which make them unwittingly vulnerable to direct alien coercion and control. The free will value of the tricked person is then integrated as a kind of controlled operative into the total reserves of will belonging to the trickster, so that the subject, by the exercise of his own will, becomes a satellite of the higher dimensional entity, drinks in and functions by the negative type strategy of that entity as a kind of apprentice slave. They become psychically meshed in a distinct hierarchy of control a kind of cosmic pecking order of a very military-like mold, where the most clever is augmented and enhanced by the psychic conscious energies of all whom he's influenced to accept his imposition and bracketing guidance. That must be why the military seems to be their most natural target, Fonda muses. Exactly. It's the form of organization most predisposed already to think along the lines leading to the type of entrapment they specialize in. Once they get that mentality going, it fills in its own blanks. And in exactly the way the negative alien forces desire. So, even though the negative beings of the higher planetary dimensions can't enter directly into a developing system like Earth and just take over with their clearly superior technological control, they don't want to, either. It seems that's not their game. Their real game is to induce the free will development of an elite control group that will progressively seek to dominate and enslave all others. And in so doing, the aliens will have succeeded in allying and properly polarizing the spirit of a number of souls that then become valuable to them as functional additions to their some psychic mass, the total spiritual power that they can bring to bear in and through any given dimension. Fonda's face seems solidified to a veritable freeze, fixing his features to their far-out mold. This is why throughout history they've been around, and there's been evidence of them, you know, like descriptions of the craft and beings in the Bible or the Ramayana, inexplicable relics like crystal skulls or the peculiar patterns at Nazca. But they've never just entered overtly into and taken over our history as you'd expect any hostile civilization of unstoppably advanced technology to do. Rather, what they have been doing is subtly influencing the course of our surface histories and the formations of our systems and governments from behind their dimensional veil, so to speak, at a respectable distance sort of at arm's length, until they can feed us enough rope indirectly with which to hang ourselves. 
Once we're in the predicament of apparently having to request their aid or the type of counsel they're suited to supply, they can mount an invasion force adhering to the latter of the cosmic free will law while raping and plundering the very spirit that functions throughout that law. So they hang out at the margins, so to speak, and beam their repeated thought messages, their modeling images or archetypes into our psychic atmosphere, where we tend to pick it up or pass it by according to the affinities that always originate at the level of the free will variable. In that sense, you can say we're always behaviorally influenced, either internally by a tendency of our subconscious patterns or inbuilt autonomic codes, or externally by a bombardment of positive or negative rays of light energy according to the type of entity that seeks to resonate our psychic atmosphere. We're behaviorally influenced, but not controlled at least not until such time as we might fall prey, because of the passive habit of our will to the type of coercive, mechanical, or formal regulation such passivity implicitly invites. So these dudes, like, hang out in their little saucers and cups above the planet and sort of, like, shoot pirate radio broadcasts all day long. <laughs> oh. Hopper takes obvious pleasure from his rhetorical query as he strokes his stubbly beard. Ah, here's the really weird part about it. You mean it hasn't been weird so far? It seems that all the ancient stories and folklore about forbidden caverns, underground systems of tunnels going down into whole other worlds beneath the earth and so on, you know, like sesame and other tales of secret openings in the sides of mountains, mysterious holes in the middle of the desert have a basis in fact. Pass that joint, would you? Whereas we're taught to believe that there's basically a solid mass under us compressed into magma and intense temperatures toward the core, there's actually an entire mediating world of levels and intertwined passages like a gigantic ant farm that snakes to incredible depths and stretches all across the globe, connecting landmasses and continents by secret tubules and running under the ocean floors. And there are all manner of civilizations in the vast underground caverns that are connected by these passages, some of which are populated by the ancestors of ancient refugees from surface cataclysms some of which are inhabited by alien life forms from other dimensional galaxies of space and time that find it's much more convenient to establish these quasi-permanent underground outposts than to shuttle back and forth from their native worlds to this. And why, pray tell, do they want <laughs> to set up shop here in the first place? Hopper challenges with mellow pugnaciousness taking a deep hit while the campfire crackles like the popping of gigantic seeds. It seems there's various motives, depending on the type of alien consciousness we're talking about. Jack palpably warms to his subject, knowing like a good attorney that he has his jury spellbound, regardless what each intends to turn in as a verdict. 
There's good aliens who want to be of help in furthering man's evolutionary development and spiritual knowledge so that he can someday sit on the intergalactic council of cosmic caretakers along with them. And there's aliens that are basically neutral as far as man's own development is concerned, but are involved by scientific curiosity. Usually these types of aliens require Earth as a kind of watering hole or colony of natural resources. Of course, some of those natural resources have to do with man's genetic makeup, which these beings find hardier than most of their own since their development is necessarily advanced along with the accompanying age of their son, and their heredity vitality is consequently tracing the downward side of a bell-shaped curve. Their residency underground is sort of like setting up a field laboratory. Occasionally, they abduct surface people, basically women, but sometimes men, and take them to their underground labs, where chromatic materials are removed or certain types of genetic alterations are made that they feel will eventually contribute to a better strain of their own hereditary splicings. These types aren't basically harmful, or they don't intend real harm, although the trace impressions of abduction can be traumatic to the human psyche, even if they're subconsciously buried by mesmeric programs, since these aliens don't understand human emotion very well. You have that roach, man? Then, of course, there's the bad guys. These fellows are basically the hunters of existence. Their whole behavior pattern has to do with conquest. Since they're spiritual hunters, of course, from the higher planes of being, they're really interested in creating a vast psychic network of control, like an extending webwork emanated out in all directions of space and time from the commander-in-chief at the center. This central commander is like the bull of the herd. His position at the axis of the whole revolving network is sort of an effort to establish a personalized form of consciousness or ego identity at the place of God, or infinite void being, which is the universal value that's obtained when you align all coordinates with their common axis in the positive framework. You know, it's kind of like King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. All the beings of positive orientation coordinate their efforts in an equitably distributed harmony, each for the other, so to speak, so that the common good is a central convergence point of their effort that doesn't have any specially benefited being at its center. Consider the Round Table. The king and all the knights sit around the circumference across from each other like reciprocally polarized values, radical extremes that cancel in a harmony of cooperative cross-correlation, or perfect service, at their common center. And that center is the void center. No one sits there, but it represents the whole or complete value of them all, the spirit that they serve. The negative hierarchy, on the other hand, is inspired by a viewpoint that compels every unit to place itself 
on the throne of that center, to install itself in a godlike position. Far out! Fonda inhales with an abrupt hiss from the tripod of fingers bunched to his lips. In the deeper psychic or spiritual dimensions to which these negative beings are polarized, consciousness is power rather than wisdom. Their wisdom consists in knowing how to get power. Since the key is consciousness regardless how it's viewed, the free will variable has to be respected or else the coveted value is taken out of the commodity. The soul that's drained to oblivion as a strictly robotic reflex or programmed response mechanism may be usable in the way that machinery is usable, but the significant recruit is the one who's been taken by trickery so that his free will variable is basically intact, but aligned in psychic congruence with the pattern secretly imposed on it that allows the actual energy potential of the consciousness variable to be integrated into the aura of the dominating or victorious will. The recruit has chosen to polarize negatively, regardless of what he thought he was doing, and conserving that conscious value as it's effectually added to the sum potencies leashed to the leader's own auric field thereby magnifying it, represents the real point of the negative game. One of the corollary rules of the game is that all those who can't be led to polarize negatively should be led away from polarizing positively, and ideally tricked into accepting a form of slave service as either preferable or inevitable. In this way, the negative being ideally picks up all the pieces on the game board and wins. So, what about those tunnels? Oh yeah, the underground caverns and passageways actually intersect different dimensional doorways as they go down, so that beings from various planetary dimensions of space and time can find their correlative dimension in certain of their pockets or strata below, rather than on the surface with its very precious and specialized atmosphere of physical brain conditions. The inner energy atmospheres associated with the tunnel systems below ground allow beings from other planets and galaxies representing higher dimensional composites or ratios of alignment to dwell in corresponding conditions for sustained periods of time. Thus, these different beings don't really live on Earth in the sense that we think of it, and yet they don't have to hover in their own contained atmosphere aboard their saucers around the margins of the Earth crust, periodically returning for replenishment to their planetary origin. Ah, instead they establish these quasi-permanent outposts underground. They've been with us since the dawn of time in one form or another, and have intermittently interacted with Earth beings above ground according to conditions and the screening cycles of the planet's energy network. What's that? Well, it seems Earth has a system of biomagnetic fields and pulsating currents that resonate the planetary envelope, producing a variable aperture or screening effect. 
making it more or less difficult for beings of any particular polarization alignment to penetrate the prevailing field circuitry at the surface. Part of the work of the negative beings, in fact, is to induce activities of people at the surface that will serve unwittingly to alter the resonance shell so as to weaken its shield. A good part of their plan involves getting Earth beings to violate the encoded energy net or magnetic filtering mechanism of the planetary envelope. I guess it doesn't take much to figure what that activity consists of. <laughs> well, besides the obvious stuff like detonating underground nuclear weapons, tearing holes in the ozone layer and altering Earth's respiration rate by stripping her forests, there's the less well-known stuff. Such as? Holes are beginning to appear in Hopper's memory circuits, causing him to forget momentarily his skeptical hardline on the matter. It seems that the negative aliens have furnished the military a lot of technical knowledge about how to engineer resonance frequencies, and even the fields that underlie subatomic physics. They've been given the basic means whereby they can duplicate some of the aliens' own manipulative activity. And of course, a military is eager to compete with the aliens according to their scenario of preemptive first-strike capabilities. Just what does this engineering allow them to do? Well, first of all, it allows them to scramble atmospheric resonance frequencies so that the field in which our optimal brainwave patterns function is dislocated. More specifically, it allows them to tailor certain interference effects mainly involved with ultra-low frequencies in such a way as to skip intervening space. That means they don't have to propagate in a straight line, but can coordinate fields to critically integrate and interfere at distinct target points, producing strictly local and discontinuous effects as if out of nowhere. And this means they can disrupt communications, produce implosions or explosions, carry brainwave scrambles to distant points, lock into the biomagnetic patterns of birds, animals, or sea creatures so as to trick their instinctual radars and substitute artificial trajectories that will home them all unknowingly along aberrative courses. Wow, you mean like, like beaching whales? Uh-huh, and bombarding targeted houses with disoriented flying predators. When did that happen? Never mind. They can use these remote system field modulators to tailor certain weather patterns, producing unseasonal phenomena that serve to devastate indigenous resources. Or they can generate wholly artificial weather effects in the way Tesla is said to have reproduced an electric storm in all its natural ferocity. Phew! And they do this to their own planet? Their own people? First-strike capabilities, hmm? What else are they going to practice on? Of course, the net effect is to cause significant holes to appear in the invisible screening mechanism of the planetary envelope as it makes the Earth's surface less and less hospitable to its indigenous citizens. It causes the proper sequence of conditions congenial to a more consistent stream of invasive influences. It makes the planet proportionally more habitable to those beings that are intrinsically inimicable to it. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. 
Hopper resurges, spackling some of the psychic cracks in his wall of skepticism. If the powers that be are so busy doing all of this, how come nobody notices? How come out of all the masses of people that would have to be involved in this, someone doesn't blow the whistle? And, and what about the equipment to do these things? Where's all that stuff? It can't be hiding. It's got to be big enough to get somebody's attention. It is, Captain. It is. It's big enough, all right, but most of the equipment used is highly specialized. Belongs to classified projects where very few have to know what's really going on. Systems are built by several corporations. They're manned by specialists who only know their own function. And most of the equipment that's involved is versatile. It doesn't just serve one function, but can double for different functions. With the slightest alteration or adjustment, ordinary radar equipment can convert to specialized transmitters, processing quite exotic forms of energy. NORAD, for example, has an ELF resonance transmitter a mile under the Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado, with a broadcast antipode in the South Indian Ocean. There's the Australian Pine Gap transmitter, with an antipode in the Great Dividing Ridge in the Atlantic Ocean, and a nearby Northwest Cape transmitter that has an antipode right in the middle of the Bermuda Triangle. Find that interesting, Captain? Intense fields produced in fluctuating patterns can cause radiation burns, mental aberration, or genetic damage. And with the ability to subtly engineer the EM infrastructure as taught by the aliens, it's possible to induce long-distance trance states, disrupt or modify human behavior patterns, or even subliminally program a suitable subject with or without implanted headset. Nicholson leans back, gazing into the fire like the cat that swallowed the canary. Hopper doesn't say a word, entranced and immobile as if the whole recitation has filled one ear only to be emptied from the other synaptical chemistries of the memory circuits happily playing in some other breaker of the brain. Both the military and the aliens have laced the meridians of the globe with artificial ley line systems. Complex grid networks established superimposed resonance circuits that can arbitrarily augment or disrupt natural patterns. And that only serves to exaggerate the changes that are taking place as part of the real Earth cycle. The tectonic shifts and magnified radiation of the solar winds, of course, it has been said. Jack draws with a sly sideways glance at Hopper and Fonda that the effectiveness of the artificial grid network will only be maximized and operating at full capacity if and when an axis tilt occurs that wobbles the polar alignments. You mean the aliens or the government or somebody has a stake in engineering that, too? Fonda exclaims, his patent far out fixing his features in a cartoon stoned astonishment. Nicholson doesn't reply but gives the impression that were he to burp in that moment, a few yellow feathers would puff from his mouth. The aliens engineer all kinds of effects from their underground lairs, he continues at last. 
In fact, coupled to their demonstrable ability to produce extreme effects of dislocation in space and time and so forth, they also claim that they've played a preemptive role in staging all the significant events in human history. Do tell. Uh, have you seen that joint? Yep. Why, it's well known that they even demonstrated to the top brass in their secret underground quarters at Dulce or Groom Lake or somewhere just how they created Christ and the whole set of established religions and religious figures. There's even supposed to be a photograph somewhere of this big holographic display they allegedly produced out of the Akashic Record or something that shows the crucifixion as it actually took place. Just what is their point to all of this? Hopper demands, the edge of irritation in his demeanor suddenly sharpened again. Though it isn't clear whether it's the religious inference or his inability to locate the circulating roach that sets him off, well, it's hard to say exactly. There are several possible scenarios, you know. One train of thought believes that they have done this to disabuse us, for one reason or another, from the very idea of conventional religiosity. To create a disenchantment so they can forsake the crutches of organized religion that they provided for us in our younger days and follow them into the higher dimensional training of space-age spiritual technology. Another train of thought believes that they've done this because they want us to recognize them as the custodians of our most sacred ideals and traditions. Again, so we'll be willing to follow them wherever else they lead. Exactly. On the more negative side, of course, some suspect it may just be a ploy to demoralize the human family and its leaders, undermine the confidence they've traditionally had in their cherished institutions and belief patterns. The kind of thorough dispiriting that would take place if the impact were strong and unexpected enough would naturally have repercussion throughout man's system. It would even impact his biology, his physical stability. It's well known how negative or anxious psychological states weaken the immunology networks. You can imagine how many generals and top brass with big egos backed by God and country were taken down several pegs by a bunch of little gray gumbies from Beetlejuice when they started showing their family slides. All you have to do is undermine confidence and let a state of depression set in. The mind is much more vulnerable to suggestion when it's morally defeated, when the resistance systems are fatigued by sudden overload. On the other hand, Hopper opines in a sudden maniacal staccato precisely borrowed from his blue velvet character. Isn't it just possible? This indirectly validates the whole spiritual thing. Like, doesn't it just act to put the whole church bag in a positive perspective? Give it a new lease on life by reverse psychology. You know, man. He snorts, laughing. I mean, if these little gray dudes who are obviously, you know, negative in so many ways are making such an effort to convince the powers that be how they're at the bottom of the whole Jesus trip and all that, isn't it kind of evident they're attempting to discredit it by association? Or else? Nicholson lifts a forefinger as if to instruct the jury on a subtle legal point. It's a triple reverse psychological ploy. 
and they're really trying to make their identification with it so obvious as an attempt to discredit that they succeed in driving people back into the arms of standard religion, which is where they really want them to be all along. <sighs> Fonda exhales. Would you mind running that by me one more time? <laughs> I can't. Nicholson chuckles after considering the request with ponderous deliberation. It's hard for me to follow that one myself. Hey, what about all the Virgin Mary apparitions and things? Fonda considers sedately as he peers with myopic nearness into the glowing tip of the joint. Do all those phenomena that have been seen by thousands like Lourdes or Fatima tend to confirm conventional religion? Or do they fit more into the general engineering format that these little critters have been revealing? Well, that all depends. Jack smiles sideways as if building momentum for another role. Since each of those phenomena have their own individual character in a lot of respects. If you take the very first one, for example, the Lord's thing that happened to the little French girl Bernadette in the 1800s, why that caused a great deal of consternation to the entrenched church authority. That whole thing carried some messages that weren't at all acceptable to Catholic dogmas, whereas some of the later ones seemed to fit more conveniently into the standard religious mold. In fact, a lot of them tend to be so specifically Catholic in content and tone that it gets many people wondering whether an authentic spiritual phenomenon could ever legitimately manifest in such accord with one particular religious belief pattern. I'll bet it doesn't bother the Catholics. Well, that's just the point. It seems that, despite a lot of official resistance to the whole idea of Latter-day miracles and special manifestations of spiritual apparitions not strictly controllable in their spontaneous appearances by church authority, nonetheless, there's a lot more recent willingness to accept or implicitly condone this activity on the part of the papal hierarchy just because it tends to ship so much dogmatic content along with glowing forms and colored lights. In a sense, it seems to present just the unexpected boost in the arm to religious traditionalism that was needed in an increasingly skeptical and secularized world, but which couldn't be generated from within the restricted sanctions of cathedral walls and so forth. Then it seems a case could be made for the idea that a lot of the apparitions are engineered by the superior technologies of the saucer beings, since they follow the official programs and parochial customs so religiously. <laughs> seems so. Common sense would tend to tell you it would be hard for a legitimate spiritual phenomenon to get the sectarian details down so exact unless, number one, there was a true one religion of the most specialized denominational type, or number two, there was a manipulative intelligence behind the scenes presenting such digestible formats for its own purposes. An important point to not forget in all this, Jack stirs the embering campfire, sparks leap from the twirling tip of the twig, is that the space beings could be telling different groups different things for different purposes. Like what, for instance? 
Like, for instance, we only know about that display they apparently put on in private for the top brass because of an information leak. Maybe that disclosure wasn't meant for the majority of people, just for the generals and the corporate popes that run the show. Maybe that hologram National Geographic special on Golgotha that beings put on was only meant for certain eyes so that they could be weaned away from any residual attachment to the religious formulas that keep the majority entranced. Maybe they needed to take away the last conditioned affiliation to the docile sheep mentality so that they could be more easily led into unrestrained lust for total power. These big boys would be the souls of space beings intended to capture, to enlist as buck privates at the bottom of the pecking order, of their own psychic hierarchies, and the majority of mankind that wasn't already predisposed or basically committed to self-serving power aggrandizement would comprise the souls the space beings intended to enslave. Through the unleashed manipulations and diabolicalized machinations of the former. Far out! Wow! Hopper breathes looking starward in a kind of awe at the conceptual magnitudes so suddenly sprawled out before him. Then, ultimately, like, it all boils down to a spiritual war, after all. It all comes down to the battle for the psyche of mankind, for the allegiance of mankind's heart and soul. And a major part of it has to do with the question whether conventional religion is the refuge against the onslaught of the negative darkness, such as belief in Jesus and all that, or, or whether, in fact, it's all a cleverly prepared trap meant to keep people locked into negative anxiety patterns so that they perpetually postpone their own spiritual development, put off seeing through their own personally awakened eyes in favor of anticipating their ultimate salvation through an arbitrary belief. Yes, the frail arbitrariness of which is cleverly compensated by making it a matter of dogma, giving it the status of a culturally sanctioned absolute, the very questioning of which is a heresy, meant to throw up inbuilt psychological blocks, deep fear barriers, and guilt reflexes. The plot, man, <laughs> definitely thickens. Silence descends. The trio sits motionless before the banking fire. Behind them, a comet streaks earthward. A van of happy travelers pass by on the open highway, going to the convention, going to the great annual Timothy Beckley UFO and hot plate convention in the land of the mighty Thunderbird. <laughs>